I am the Lord your God. That's how the Ten Commandments begin. We talked about that preface in our introduction to the Ten Commandments, but I want to give you an example of how God used that little statement to change a man's life. Uh, When Ebenezer Erskine, which first of all, it's just a fun name, isn't it? Ebenezer Erskine. Kids, be glad if that's not your name. That's that's grace right there. Um, When Ebenezer Erskine was 10 years old, his dad taught him the shorter catechism. And for some reason, question 43 of that catechism gripped him. Uh, Question 43 asks, what is the preface to the Ten Commandments? And the answer is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And those words, I am the Lord your God, left an impression on his 10-year-old heart. However, Ebenezer was not a believer. Uh, He was not a believer at 10 years old, and he wasn't a believer at 20 years old, and he was not a believer at 28 years old when he became a pastor. You do know that a person can find their way into pastoral ministry and not even be truly saved. And Ebenezer was one of those. Uh, He later said, I began my ministry without much zeal, mechanically being swallowed up in unbelief. Uh, On one occasion, his wife became sick and feverish and in her delirium, she, she cried out about her preacher husband's cold, unbelieving heart. Uh, she knew what kind of man he was. And as she cried out about his unbelief, her words pierced Ebenezer's heart. Uh, Ebenezer said that as he sat by her, convicted of his sin, uh, those words from his childhood came back to his mind. I am the Lord your God. And by grace, because of this, Ebenezer said at that moment he surrendered himself finally, soul and body, unto God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, I flee for shelter to the blood of Jesus. I will live to him and I will die to him. Well, at age 38, Ebenezer Erskine preached a powerful sermon on Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. Uh, And God used it mightily in his own congregation. And soon it had been printed and it was being used by God all over Scotland to bring about the salvation of many people. Uh, If you want to, you can go home and you can Google Ebenezer Erskine on Exodus 20. And you'll you'll find that, that sermon. You can read it for yourself. And what Erskine does is he unpacks the glories of this statement. How remarkable it is that sinners like us can say that the Lord is our God. And therefore, when God has been so good to us, to take us to himself, how can we not worship him above all? How can we not not love him above all? At age 73, Erskine was dying. And one of his fellow elders at his church was visiting him at his bedside. And the elder said, You have often given us good advice, Mr. Erskine, as to what we should do with our own souls in death. May I ask you what you are now doing with your own? And he replied, I am doing what I did 40 years ago. 
I am resting on that word. I am the Lord, your God. So tonight we're continuing to think about the first commandment. But I don't want us to miss the preface, the authority behind it, but also the love behind it. So look again, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now already we have seen what God is setting apart for honor in this commandment. Every commandment, God is setting something apart for honor. In this commandment, He is setting apart Himself. There is nothing or no one more worthy of honor than God Himself. And we are to know Him as the one true God with our minds. We are to uh, esteem Him, love Him, uh, value Him as the one true God with our hearts. And we are to honor Him as the one true God with our wills. God is the most valuable being in the universe, the one from whom and through whom and for whom all things exist. And yet we saw this morning that every single one of us has broken the first commandment. It's the foundational commandment. If, if you keep the first commandment, you'll keep all the others. But instead of esteeming God as we ought, we have violated this law. Um, some break this commandment through atheism, professing that there is no God. More of us have broken this commandment through functional atheism, living as if there is no God. And certainly all of us have broken this commandment through idolatry. By giving to other things or other beings or other persons the love and honor that only God himself is due. Some have given themselves to false religions. And all of us have committed heart idolatry. Treasuring something else more than God himself. And yet Jesus Christ came and he kept the first commandment for us. He was devoted to God above all, even to the point of death. And because of his cross work, when we believe on him, our sins are washed away and we are made right with God. And then where we ended this morning is that there is something else that happens when we believe on Christ. Namely, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our souls. And by his power, as Christians, we are enabled to keep this commandment. We were once slaves to sin. We couldn't keep the first commandment even if we wanted to. But we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now enabled and compelled by the Spirit of God to exalt Him above all things. And so that brings us to our fourth question that we're answering about this commandment. How does the Holy Spirit help us with this commandment? How does the Holy Spirit help us with this commandment? So I'm going to give you three biblical answers. Here they are. Number one, first, the Spirit shows us God's worth. The Spirit shows us God's worth. We know from Romans 1 that all people everywhere without exception have an inward sense of God and His greatness. Uh, Paul says there, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. And them here is all humanity. Because God has shown it to them, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
So this is a a settled fact from the Bible. All people everywhere have clearly perceived in creation that there is a God and that He is a powerful, divine, the highest of beings. And so what's the problem? Well, Paul says they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here's the situation. All humanity is without excuse because all have known that we ought to honor God as God, but we've chosen to do otherwise. Every person on earth is guilty of violating the first commandment. But but why? Why is this true? Well, the answer is willful blindness. Paul says it this way. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So although all people perceive that there is a God, and everybody in the world knows deep down that there's a God to whom they owe their allegiance and their honor, all people also desire to be free from this God. They don't want to honor God. They want to be their own God. They they want to serve their fleshly desires as gods. And therefore, this is also true of every person in the human race. They suppress the truth about God. They hold it down. They push it down. They don't want to think about it. Their love for their sin makes them willfully blind to God's glory and the honor He is due. If you're here tonight and you're a Christian, that's who you used to be. But God did not leave you in that condition. He did not leave you walking in willful blindness towards hell. Instead, by His Spirit, He broke through your willful blindness. When our own wills loved sin and didn't want to acknowledge God and didn't want to see His glory, when we loved darkness rather than light, God pierced through anyway. And here's how Paul describes what God has done for us. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And here it is. For God who said... Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So just as God in Genesis 1, everything was darkness and he spoke. Let there be light and there was light. So also in your soul, there was a moment when God spoke. And the Holy Spirit came and gave you understanding, gave you light, and made you a new creature in Christ. But what is this light? What what is this light? How does it get described here? Well, it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you were in darkness, you didn't want to honor God. You didn't want to regard God as highest of all. But now the light that God has shown you is the light of His goodness. It's the light of His glory. It's knowing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That as you see Jesus Christ in the pages of the Bible, as you read about Jesus Christ in the pages of the Bible, as you see the power of Jesus Christ in the lives of people around you, the Holy Spirit is showing you more and more the worth, 
the value, the beauty of this God. The Spirit is giving you new reasons every day to love Him more and to give Him more of your allegiance. You have now found the pearl of greatest price. You have, you have come into the relationship to which, to which everything else in the world can be counted as rubbish compared to this. The Spirit has, has shown you and is showing you the worth of God to help you obey the first commandment. But in second, more than that, the Spirit gives us a heart that treasures God. He gives us a heart that treasures God. So the work of salvation is a heart transplant. You've been given a new heart if you're a Christian. The heart of stone that was dead to God has been replaced with a a heart of flesh, Ezekiel says. A heart that's sensitive to God's glories. It can sense God's glories. it's, It's influenced by God's wonders and by His love. And isn't it interesting that in that verse I quoted from 2 Corinthians a while ago, Paul says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because that's not what I would expect him to say. I would expect when he's talking about knowledge, right? Light is knowledge. Light is, oh, the lights are on. I can see. Now I know where I'm going. Now I know what's in here. So usually when I think of light, I'm thinking of mind. I'm thinking of knowledge. But Paul doesn't say God's given us the the light of, uh, that God has shown in our minds his light. He says he's shown in our hearts. And that's because this knowledge of God that we've been given is not just a matter of facts and propositions. The Spirit has affected our hearts so that we love the God who is described in those facts and propositions. Imagine a man digging a garden in his backyard. And as he turns up the ground with his hoe, he suddenly hits something hard. And he bends down and he picks it up and it turns out to be the largest, most magnificent diamond that any of us has ever seen. He doesn't know how it got there, but anyone can look at this diamond and see it's not worth thousands, it's worth millions of dollars. But this man picks up the diamond, he curses at it for getting in the way of his gardening, and he tosses it away like a rock. Now, what would we say of such a man? We would say he's a fool. We would say he clearly doesn't appreciate what he has found. He has just held something magnificent before his eyes, but it wasn't magnificent to him. Friends, it would not matter what the Spirit showed us about the glories of God. It would not matter what the Spirit revealed to us about Jesus and our Savior in the pages of the Bible if our hearts were still stone. If our hearts were still stubborn and hardened. And so one great gift of the Spirit is that He resets our priorities. Our value system was turned topsy-turvy by the fall. Natural man, unsaved man, treasures trifles and treats as trifles the things that are truly treasures. Wow, say that five times fast. Let me say it again, not fast. Natural man treasures trifles... And treats as trifles those things that are truly treasures. I can hardly say it. But you get the idea, right? The Spirit is changing that in us. 
The Spirit is, is restoring what was lost by the fall and helping us to value again what is truly valuable. And above all, the Spirit is helping us to truly treasure God Himself. So the Spirit both reveals to us you know, knowledge about God and who He is and shows us His worth in a factual, intellectual sense. But even more than that, the Spirit is giving us a heart to appreciate what we see. To love the God that we discover in the pages of the Bible. One sign that the Spirit of God is within you is that you're like the man in the parable that Jesus told about the pearl of greatest price. That man realized what he had found. He went out and he sold everything he had in order to have that pearl. The genuine spirit-dwelt Christian realizes that God is worth everything we might give up in order to have him. His love is better than even our lives. We would forsake anything and everything at his command in order to know him and to be known by him. I simply want to ask, is, is that your heart tonight? Is that how you treasure God? Uh, do you say with David, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. Is there a hunger and a thirst for more of God? Oh, for more of God in my life. Oh, for my, for my communion with Him to be sweeter and deeper and richer. Oh, to see more of His glory. Third, third, the Spirit uses the means of grace to help us better see and savor God as the highest and best of beings. So the Spirit uses the means of grace to help us better see and savor God as the highest and best of beings. It isn't as if we come to Christ and then immediately we treasure God unfailingly all times above everything else. No. We as Christians are in process. At the root of who you are, the Spirit has transformed you so that you have come to love God above all. But this change at the root of you hasn't yet affected the whole tree. Uh, we still have sins poisoned within us. And often, practically speaking, we continue to fail to esteem God as we ought. Not until we reach heaven itself will our hearts be fully restored. Only in heaven will we finally love God as we ought. But the Spirit is helping us to grow in our love and our reverence and our honor for God now. And the more we grow in this life, the greater blessing we will be to others. Uh, the more we love God in this life and esteem Him in this life, the more solid our faith will be, the more solid our holiness and our daily walk with Christ. And the saltier you will be and the brighter you will shine. Heaven will be all about seeing and savoring God's glory. And the Holy Spirit is fitting you for that now. So how is the Spirit helping us grow? Well, it's through these means of grace. And you know the big three. There's prayer. What a gift to be able to take to God anything you want in prayer. To be able to commune with Him. To be able to, to praise Him and to thank Him and to cast your cares upon Him. And just to meditate on His Word and His presence. Do you do that when you're reading God's Word? Do you, do you read it in His presence? God, what, what do you mean by that? Help me out. <laughs> right? Do you, do you commune with Him as you're, as you're studying? There is Scripture. Uh, the Word of God is such a gift. It's living and active. It pierces our very souls. 
And certainly God uses the scriptures to cause us to value God as we ought. There's the local church with all of its ordinances given to us for our growth. The preaching of God's word, Christian fellowship, the Lord's table. We are to love these means, not just for their own sake. We're to love these things because through them we come to better love God. We are to love prayer because it helps us grow in our esteem and our trust in God. We're to love the Bible because it helps us grow in our reverence and our awe towards God. We're to love the local church because it helps us to to grow in, in, in admiring God as we ought and being faithful in obedience. Through these means especially, the Spirit helps us in keeping the first commandment. Well, finally, what I want to do is spend the rest of our time tonight moving through some particular applications of the first commandment. Uh, We'll try and do this with each of the commandments, um, especially as we go a little further down the list. There are all kinds of special situations that come up that we won't be able to talk to them all on Sunday night. Some we'll talk through on Wednesday night. Um, But I do want to try and hit on some of these special applications and peculiar applications uh, as we walk through each commandment. So uh, let me give you four negative applications. Uh, That is, four things we must reject because of the first commandment. Okay, Four things we must reject because of the first commandment. So number one, we must reject pluralism. Pluralism. Pluralism is this idea that there are multiple gods or multiple religions that may be true, multiple faiths that are equally valid. Uh, Pluralists argue that it's absolutely appropriate for me to believe that my God is the true God, but what I must never do is insinuate or state that someone else's God is false. Uh, rather, pluralists tend to see religions as all as, as different paths up the same mountain. And they would say, at the end, you all reach the same peak. You may take the Muslim path, you may take the Christian path, you may take the atheist path, you may take the Hindu path, but you all end up at the same goal. Um, others say that perhaps different religions are just like spokes on a wheel. All spokes, but they all lead to the same center. And even uh, not too long ago, the Pope said that atheists and unbelievers may just show up in heaven. And that, that shows you pluralism, how that's, how that's affecting our culture and our world. The first commandment says we're to have no other gods before God. In the presence of God, in the sight of the true God who sees all, we are to worship no one as God, but God only. And therefore, those who worship any God other than He revealed in the pages of Scripture are sinning. They are participating in a wicked activity. Look, we want to love. We want to love the people around us who are caught up in pluralism. We want to have mercy on them. We want to call them to Christ. But we must be clear. Islam is wicked. It is. It's wicked. Hinduism is wicked. Atheism is wicked. And and we cannot be ashamed to say so. It is not loving to stay silent on that. God's honor is on the line. We must speak the truth in love, but we must speak the truth. Our society wants a kind of tolerance in which you affirm that it is good for others to worship false gods. You must never be tolerant like that. That is not a kind of tolerance that we can embrace as Christians because it's a sinful tolerance. It's a tolerance that affirms the violation of the first commandment. When religious leaders 
participate in multi-faith services where Christians and Muslims and others pray to their various gods together as if each faith is equal, that's participating in sin. It's, it's immoral. That's, that's wicked. There is no God but the true God, the God of the Bible. And to act as if any other faith is valid is to encourage people in demonic delusion. And love should not let us do that. Well, second, we must reject scientism. Scientism. S-C-I-E-N-T-I-S-M. I actually think scientism is one of the most prominent religions in our country today. Uh, certainly in the media, when scientists speak, that's often taken as the final word. Uh, science seems to be the new God. And scientists are the priests who speak for that God. And taxpayer government grants are the offerings that we make to this God. Uh, since most of us are unable to personally verify the conclusions that scientists announce, the truth is most of us hold to scientific truth through faith. And when we place the conclusions of modern science above God's declared truth, we are guilty of putting science where only God should be. So, for example, when God's Word says that the world was created in six days, if science says differently, many people say immediately, oh, well, the Bible must be wrong. Uh, Scripture says that Jesus was raised from the dead. Science says that's impossible. Well, then the Scripture must be an error. Uh, for In the minds of many in our culture, science trumps Scripture. Rather than God and His revealed Word being the highest authority, many submit to accepted scientific conclusions as the highest authority. And yet, as we've seen before, the issue is not science itself. Christians should be pro-science. Uh, when science is done rightly, it is in perfect accordance with God's Word. Natural revelation, which is science, and special revelation, which is the Bible, are two parts of one book written by the same God. They are not ultimately in conflict with each other. Now, some months ago on a Sunday evening, we walked through the attributes of scientific laws and saw how they share the attributes of God because ultimately every scientific law comes from God. And this was our conclusion from Vern Poitras. He says, It suffices to observe that in reality, what people call scientific law is divine. We are speaking of God Himself and His revelation of Himself through His governance of the world. Scientists must believe in scientific law in order to carry out their work. When we analyze what this scientific law really is, we find that scientists are constantly confronted with God Himself, the Trinitarian God, and that they are constantly depending on who He is and what He does in conformity with His divine nature. In thinking about law, scientists are thinking God's thoughts after Him. So when we understand science rightly, we should realize there is no conflict between true science and God and His Word. But the problem is the fact that science is interpreted through human beings with fallen hearts and fallen minds. And since we just heard that natural man does not want to affirm God, 
that natural man wants to suppress the truth about God, that natural man does not want to acknowledge God or give gratitude to God, it should not surprise us that often scientists interpret scientific data in a way that contradicts biblical truth and undermines faith. Poitras says, science is not a neutral endeavor, but presupposes scientific law which presupposes God. People either serve God or they serve a counterfeit God. The kind of God that they serve influences their expectations concerning the kinds of laws they will find. Thus, the entrance of bias is not merely an occasional accidental error, but a pervasive problem. It is as pervasive as sin in the heart. So when we treat current scientific assumptions as though they are more authoritative than the word of God handed down to us, we align our worldview and our lives with the teachings of science rather than scripture. And that's idolatry. It's a violation of the first commandment. It's an error and and it's one that we see happening all over our land and that we must be warned about. Well, number three, number three, we must reject me-ism, me-ism, M-E-I-S-M, me-ism. This is the false religion. This is the false religion that is underneath all other false religions. It is the worship of me. It is the service of self. It's interesting that Jesus did not come preaching for people to deny Zeus or to deny Hera, or to deny Aphrodite, or to deny Artemis, though those were the gods worshipped by so many in the Greek cultures of his day. Even in Israel, where he lived and had his ministry, Greek culture had influenced that, that people. So that there were many Jews who worshipped Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite and Artemis. And Jesus never came to them saying, you must deny them and follow me. He said, no, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. Because here is the God that leads us to serve other false gods. This is the God who tempts us daily, every hour, to neglect the true God and to serve the counterfeit. And it's the God of self. It's the God, it's it's the religion of me. Will I follow God's will or will I follow my will? And that's a question that you and I face over and over and over again every single day. In this moment, will I serve my desires or will I serve God's desires? In this moment, will I live for my name or will I live for God's name? I've been reflecting lately on a quote by William Booth. Uh, He said, the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. Say that again. The greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. To put it differently, the more surrendered we are to God, the more powerful we truly are. Because it is in our weakness that we are strong. It is when we have fallen out of love with ourselves. It's when we have surrendered ourselves most to live for Him and God's glory that God is pleased to do the most wonderful, powerful acts in and through us. If I want to be most useful to God, then I must be most surrendered to Him. Thy will be done ought to be the cry of our hearts. There is joy here. 
There is a wonderful freedom in no longer trying to direct my own life, but in being a servant and following the orders of a king. Thy will be done are words of liberty. They're they're peace-giving words. They're life-giving words. And so, is that you? Have you found the joy of living life as a servant of God? As one surrendered to God? As one who says, Father, wherever you lead, I'll go. Or are you still caught up in the religion of meism, in the service of self? Well, number four, we must reject religious compartmentalism. Religious compartmentalism. Uh, this is the idea that we keep our Christianity in just one part of our lives. That we compartmentalize our lives. So I have this part of my life over here, this part of my life over here, and I'm going to be a Christian in this part. I'm going to keep my faith in in this part of my life. We, We find a way to separate God from the rest of our lives. Maybe on Sundays, we will be serious about our faith. But not on Friday nights. We will have God as the true God part of the time when it's convenient. In certain areas of our lives, when we're around certain people. But complete surrender to God as God of all that we are all the time. No matter where we are. No matter who we're around. That's radical. And yet that's what God calls us to This is who we're to be as Christians. We we don't sing, some to Jesus I surrender. Some to Jesus, some to Him I freely give. No, we we sing all to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. Is there any part of your life that you are refusing to submit to the will of God? Having seen some negative applications... Uh, Let me mention three positive applications of the first commandment. That is, the first four were things we must not do, things we must reject. These are actions that the first commandment behooves us to undertake. People don't say behooves us enough anymore. That's a fun word. The first commandment behooves us, urges us towards towards these things. So number one, first, let us work to honor God as God with our whole selves, our mind, heart, and will. So think about those three parts of your life, right? There's your, there's your thought life. Where is God in your thought life? Do you honor God with your thoughts? Are, are you willing to resolve with me tonight to love the Lord your God with all your mind? Is He uppermost in your thinking? Think about your heart. Is God uppermost in your affections? Are you, are you working with the Holy Spirit to keep the, the fires of your love towards God burning and burning hot? God, save us from being lukewarm. Remember what the Bible says about those who are lukewarm. We, we don't want that. We don't want to be spit out. God, save us from falling away from the love we had at first. God is so good. He's so wonderful. He's so wise. We want to honor Him. We want to treasure Him with our hearts. What about your will? Do you honor God with the actual decisions that you make? 
Is it clear to everyone by the actions that we take that He is the most valuable thing in our lives? Because our choices do reveal what we value most. When people see how you order your life, do they see that God is at the center? Do they see prayer? Do they see a commitment to studying His Word and to church? Do they see a commitment to living with God's people, cultivating deep relationships, friendships with them? When people see how you spend your money or how you spend your free time, does that reveal that God is your highest love? We want to honor God with our acts of happy obedience to show even with our wills that we treasure Him above all else. Number two. Let us work to honor God as God in every calling. In every calling. So think about God's callings on your life in terms of your relationships, right? So in your role as a spouse, in your role as a parent, in your role as a child or as a sibling, do your family members love God more because of you? Have your family members been presented with a higher view of God because of of the way you relate to them? Are you a contagious Christian? Is, is your joy in God overflowing onto others in your life? In your workplace, do you work heartily as unto the Lord? Can your coworkers tell through your integrity, through the way you respond to hardship, through your words and your attitudes that you are a blood-bought sinner living in the grace of Jesus? Even in your hobbies, your vacations, your reading material, your entertainment choices, do you see God at the center? Does He have the highest place? Does your love for Him color all of those things? Number three, let us work to honor God as God before the eyes of others. Before the eyes of others. In other words, let us be intentional about God-honoring conversations. Let us be intentional about having people in our homes and sharing with them what God has done for us. Boasting in God is not something that should happen only when someone comes to you and asks you about it. Because how often does that happen, really? How often do people come to you and intentionally ask you questions about your faith? Probably not that often. This is something that we're to be intentional about. We, if God is the most valuable thing in our lives then we should want to tell others about Him. There should be an eagerness in us to to share His glory with others. And so we ought not to be ashamed of our God. He was definitely not ashamed to, to take us as His children despite all of our sin and all of our wickedness. How can we be ashamed of Him? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If our hearts are full of God, then our mouth should be, should be regularly speaking of Him and His truth and His glory. With our words and our actions, we should seek to have a God-glorifying influence on others. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the aim, that He would be glorified, that He would be seen as worthy of all love and allegiance.
So Mount Hermon, let us work at these things, but let us do these things in the joy that Christ provides. He fulfilled the first commandment for us, and he, by his Holy Spirit, enables us to obey that commandment now. So we should live in our identity as children of God. We should live with a deep sense of gratitude and a deep sense of happy humility. And we should love God as the one true God above all else. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.